morning, church. Uh, Brenda and I have been uh, doing some traveling this week. We were in uh, Southern California, in San Diego, actually, and it was colder than here. You were there also, Ethlyn? I saw pictures of you, but you didn't come to visit me. Um, we, uh, we were there for uh, a meeting in the, of the Pacific Union, uh, under the Pacific Union's leadership, called uh, West Point. And um, it moves around our union. It was in Arizona last year. It was in San Diego this year. Next year, it's going to be Ventura, uh, California. And then the year after that, it's going to be up here in Northern California. So um, uh, we'll, we'll start letting you know, especially when it gets close to home. But it was just a really good time for us to learn some things. Uh, we, there were good speakers. The uh, first speaker was an archaeologist. And uh, the first speaker we heard was an archaeologist. And uh, he shared some, some really cool things that some of you know that I'm kind of a, an archaeology uh, nut. I really get stuck in those, those holes that people are digging all throughout the Middle East. And just, I just really enjoy the things that those reveal. And one of the things that I've read about, hadn't seen, um, is uh, Hezekiah's seal. And he brought uh, a picture. He didn't have the actual seal. The seal is stowed away. Um, he brought a picture of Hezekiah's seal with him. Um, there, there are lots of things in the scriptures that people have doubted and questioned and argued about over the years. Various uh, kings, whether or not they existed, whether or not Nebuchadnezzar existed, etc. And archaeology has again and again and again demonstrated that Scripture is accurate and Scripture is right. And in this particular case, there's Hezekiah's seal, and there it is. It's got the king's name on it, and it's, it's a stamp that he put on something that uh, the stamp outlived him and whatever it was attached to. And there is a, a bit of evidence for you and I that there is this biblical king, there is his name, and there is his, his uh, signet ring. Really, really kind of a cool element of, uh, of evidence about the, the validity of Scripture. Um, we did some uh, time with Dr. Pauline talking about millennials and uh, really interesting things about that. Now I know part of the reason why I'm so confused he said, if you are 70 years old, you are firmly in the modern era. If you are 30, 35, even 40, you are pretty firmly in the millennial era. If you're between those two, you're confused. <laughs> I find myself confused. So just some things that we learned and uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be continuing to discover and think about and uh, we, uh, we had appreciated our time down there in Nethlin. Had we known you were there, we would have at least gotten out to lunch or something to uh, have a chance to say hi and to uh, hang out in San Diego together. Um, as most of you are aware, we're starting a new series today on the book of Matthew. We're not going to just be going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. We're going to specifically be looking at places in Matthew where it talks about the kingdom. Now, um, this slide I should, have, I should have caught before I allowed it to put it up there. Um, the reality is Matthew never uses, well, uses the, king, the word kingdom of God only three times in the book. Matthew is the only one of the New Testament authors who uses the term kingdom of heaven. And he uses it 32 times in the book of Matthew. So think about the fact that this is one guy who keeps saying over and over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. 
Why would he be so interested in this topic? Why this as a primary theme of what he's talking about? What we're going to do over the next few weeks is unpack some of those places where he talks about this, unpack the, the parables of Jesus on the same topic, and just kind of start trying to understand its culture, its times, and more specifically how it applies to us. Today we're just going to scratch the surface of this, just begin to look at it, and to kind of talk about what Matthew's doing. So for, to, to begin with, let's look at the first book of the Bible, or the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the what? Messiah. So what's he declaring about Jesus? That he's the Messiah. He's the one that everyone's, everyone's been waiting for. He's the answer to the Jewish people's prayers for the last 1,400 years. He's the one who was sent of God. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So does he have, does he have Jewish credibility? Yes, he's a one of us. He's a son of Abraham. And more significantly, he's a son of David because the messianic line was to come out of David's line. He was to be that eternal king who sat on the throne. And so he's beginning to lay the credibility for the messianic proof of who Jesus is from the very first sentence in the book. And he'll then go through the genealogy and describe where Jesus came from and trace his genealogy through the history of Israel so that people will know that Jesus is rightfully a son of David. By the time you get to chapter 4, we have met John the Baptist. We have met Jesus in his baptism. We've started it. We found out that John the Baptist has been imprisoned. Jesus then returns to Galilee and the Bible says, from that time on. So what is, when, when I say from that time on, what do I mean? Do I mean from that time until the next time? Or do I mean from that time until I'm done? Till I'm done, right? So the, from that time on, for the rest of his ministry, he preached about these things. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. Do you remember what repent means? It means to turn. It means to change your direction. Just change your, change your mind. Go in a different direction. Your life has been going off in this direction. Turn and go in another direction. Go in God's direction. Go in the appropriate direction. Repent. Change your direction. Change the way you're doing things. Change the way you think about things. Change the things you think you understand. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. We'll explain more about this, but this nearness of the kingdom of heaven idea is simply wrapped up in the fact that Jesus is present. When Jesus is there, the kingdom of heaven is near, and they're about to see demonstrations of this over and over and over again. The kingdom of heaven, why this topic is so important is because the kingdom of Israel had some very specific thinking about what was going to happen. You remember some of the things that they thought about, right? They believed that the Messiah was going to be a literal king who would come down on the earth and kick the Romans out, right? Now you have to remember, Israel is not that far away in historical memory from having thrown the Greeks out. The Hasmonean Empire only ended about 70, 80 years ago. And so just in 163 BC, they had thrown out the Greeks. Now the Greeks at that point were so weak in the region that it was hardly a throwing of them out. It was hardly a big deal to get rid of the Greeks. They were so weak in that region by that point that when the Maccabean revolt takes place and the Maccabeans rise to authority and to power and that, that little hundred years of freedom is taken over in Israel. Israel is given a hundred years when they're independent. They're an independent nation for a hundred years. And then along comes the Roman boot. 
And the Romans come along and they begin to put Israel back under their authority about 60 B.C. So if you think about where we are now, in this frame of time, Israel has been free recently. And so for them, the idea of a, of a messianic king who would come and throw off the Romans was a fairly realistic thing. The Maccabeans had just done this. They could be independent again if the Messiah would show up, kick out the Romans. There are lots of opinions about how he'll do it. There are more peaceful opinions that he would, he would come along and convince them and he would, it would sort of be their decision to leave. The most zealous among them tell a story. They predicted that the Messiah would come and he would crucify every Roman in Palestine. Imagine what it was like to have the Messiah come and have the Romans crucify him. Very confusing for the, for the culture, for the times. The people who are living in that moment in history, confused by this messianic guy who would come along and change the whole way of thinking for Israel. He goes from talking about a kingdom of independent Israelis, independent Jews. He goes to a kingdom of people who are looking for something in the future and a kingdom that doesn't even exist on the earth. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate when he asked him if he was the king of the Jews? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. The disciples had a pretty big mountain to climb to teach that to Israel, to try to change Israel's thinking about that. Jesus goes about speaking about the kingdom and its nearness, telling them to repent. Repentance is a change in the way you go about your business, a change in direction, a change in your thinking. Repentance is to go in a new direction. Are you familiar with Masada? This is an artist's rendition of what Masada looked like before the Romans were able to get into the city. So the story of Masada is, is told by Josephus. Um, Josephus is a, uh, a, a Jewish man who was captured by the Romans during the, the revolt. He is uh, then pressed into service for them, and he writes a history of Masada and of the other things that are going on in the first century. He's one of the few first century contemporaries that mentions Jesus. There's only two. He's one of them. But his, as he talks about Masada, he gets very explicit on the story. The story of Masada is, go, it goes like this. A group of, of extreme zealots. So now you think about revolutionaries, zealots, and extreme zealots hold up on top of this hill. This is what it looks like today. Okay? There were 960 of them, according to Josephus' record. 960 of them living up there. If you look at this particular place, you can see there's a palace on the nose of it here coming out toward us. That was Herod's palace. King Herod had intended to use this as his own place to escape if anybody ever tried to capture him. Herod was a, a bit paranoid, and so he built himself a fortress and a palace fit for a king out on the end of that fortress, out on the peninsula there. And if you were to go to Masada today, you can actually walk down toward that and into that palace and see a few relics, few remaining things that are still there, a few uh, bits of the palace still around. If you look at it, you can see this, the storage houses that are there, those long sort of uh, skinny rooms that are there. Those were storage houses. In this picture, they're all covered up and ready. Um, there's a bathhouse in, in there. There's a synagogue off on the far side where the ramp is coming up. There was a little synagogue. 
So it had all the comforts of home for the king. But the king had been dead for a long time. The king was gone. And so when they come in 70 AD to this location, it's probably mostly abandoned. 960 of them move in. And there they stand to hold off the Romans. They expect that they will be able to hold off the Romans with the protection and guidance of God, and they'll be okay. The Romans began to build that ramp that you still see the remainder of on the, on the right side of that picture over there. They began to build a, a, a dirt ramp. In the artist's rendition, you can see it looks more complete over there with a, a siege work uh, tower on the top of it. The Romans come. They surround Masada. They build a wall, a fence, all the way around it so the people who are inside can't escape. They set themselves up in the, in the region with, in camps surrounding it. The camps, even the remainders of the camps are still there. You can still see some of the camps from Masada where the Romans were, were camped. Um, they begin to uh, wait out the people as they build the ramp. The ramp gets taller and taller. They get up to the wall. And they decide, because the wall is partially made of wood, that they will throw torches onto the wall. So they climb up the siege works, and they begin to throw torches at this wall. And the wall begins to catch fire. And as the wall catches fire, and the fire begins to grow on that wall, the wind blows the fire back toward the Romans, and their siege works begin to catch fire. To the Jewish people on top of Masada, they say, oh good, God is caring for us, God is blessing for us, or is blessing us, and the wind changes and blows in the opposite direction. The siege works are put out, and the wall goes up in smoke. The Romans, allowing the wall to burn, go back to their camp. They set especially tight guards so that no one gets away. On top of that hill, a meeting is held. The leader, a man named Ezra, begins to talk. And he gets the, get, gathers the warriors who are on top of the mountain. And he says, you have sworn that you would rather die than be subjected to the Romans. We have fought all of this time, and here we are. And the wind changed directions miraculously. And God is not for us. God has chosen to not protect us, and we should therefore die. But why should we die or be captured by the Romans? He then convinces his men, his warriors, to kill their own wives and children. Then there are ten elected by lot from among the warriors. Those ten go around and each warrior lays down by his family and they kill him. Those ten then choose again by lots and there is one left. And that one kills the other nine. He's left then to go around through the community and discover if anyone is still alive and needs his assistance. And then he's to fall on his own sword and kill himself. They carry out this plan the night before the Romans come. The Romans come to the top of the hill. And the reason we know this story is because an old grandmother, her daughter, and five little kids were hiding down inside a uh, water storage site under the city. That cistern keeps the story, and that cistern is where, jo- where they are found, and Josephus interviews them so that we have the story today. How zealous would you have to be to do that? 
how committed to your belief that the Romans did not deserve to be in your community would you have to be to do that? It is about 60 A.D., between 60 and 65, when most people believe that this book was written. Do you think there might be a little stirring of that revolution going on around the community? He is standing there against a culture that is about to go into revolt. And he spends the the most of his, uh, his emphasis in the book talking not about a kingdom on earth, but about a kingdom in heaven. And he recounts the stories of Jesus where he points to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom healing every disease and sickness among the people. Have you ever thought about why Jesus heals? There are several reasons. He's relieving misery, right? He's relieving pain. He's healing people just to relieve the pain of the people. His healing also gives him credibility, right? Look at the next text. News about him spread all over Syria and the people brought... To him, all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region around, across the Jordan, followed him. Massive crowds gather. Jesus is healing people, and it's beginning to build credibility that he is not your ordinary guy. He's not just another guy wandering the, the streets of Galilee. But did you ever think about the fact that what Jesus does in healing these folks is a tiny little taste of a kingdom that's not of this earth? You know, we, we pray for healing. We often will, we'll, we'll, as a pastor, be in someone's living room or someone's hospital bed and we'll pray for healing. Sometimes we'll anoint a person and, and, and ask God to bring a special measure of his healing on them. But do you ever realize that that's the plan for every single person? That if we would accept the grace of God and the invitation to heaven, everybody gets healed. Every single person gets healed. The kingdom of heaven has no list like that. There is no list of those with diseases and pain and demon possession and seizures and paralysis and, he- and th- those who need healing because there's a transformation that takes place when you enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Jesus is healing and it he builds credibility for the people in the community around him, but the message of what is to come is also bound up in the healing touch of Jesus. This is the authority of heaven. This is what heaven looks like. This is what your life looks like if you accept the sacrifice of Jesus. This is what your life looks like if you end up standing alongside Him in heaven. This is what your life looks like. This is what it is like if you're a member of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus begins to preach, you know, so He goes about Galilee preaching. Well, that's great, but we don't get any of the sermons except for this one. 
And look at the, some of the kingdom of heaven highlights out of this one. When speaking of the Beatitudes, he starts out with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he closes with, the last one is, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's pointing to another kingdom. He's pointing a person who is caught up on this earth, who's stuck thinking about what life is going to be like if we could just get rid of the Romans, what life could be like if we could just change things around here, if we could just paint the house, if we could just get a new car, if we could just get out from under that loan, if we could just fix our marriage, if we could just fix our kid, if we could just fix some things around here, then it would be the place we need it to be. Then it would be heaven on earth. And he's saying there is no heaven on earth. There's only a heaven in heaven. Israel is saying if we could get rid of the Romans, if we could stop being under the boot, under their heel, if we could just move them out of Palestine, that would be heaven. And Jesus is saying that's not heaven. There is no heaven on earth. There's only a heaven in heaven. Most of us get caught up dreaming of a heaven on earth. Most of us have, think, have plans and dreams and hopes. And we think, oh yeah, when I get to this phase, that'll be it. That'll be great. Then I will have arrived. And we get there and we find out, you know... That beautiful brand new house still has to be painted, still has to have plumbers, and it still has to be fixed. And eventually, after a while, it becomes your old house, not your new house. And you want to find a different one. And you get that new car, and you drive it around, and after about 100,000 miles, that seat starts to break in. It's shaped like your bottom. And you sit down in that thing, and it doesn't just wrap around you like it did before, you know, that Corinthian leather. You know there's no such thing, right? It wraps around you. you know, now you don't, it doesn't wrap around you because it's this beautiful, well-formed seat. It wraps around you because you've broken that baby in. hundred miles of sitting in that seat has made it into a different location. Somebody else sits in it and it's like, man, what did you do to this seat? I just sat in it for the last hundred thousand miles. And you start thinking about a new car and how much that will make life better. And Jesus is saying, nope, there is no kingdom of heaven on earth. There's only a kingdom of heaven in heaven. Blessed are, those, blessed are you who people, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Do you think this was happening to the people of Israel with the Romans living among them and ruling over them? Sure it was. Do you think this was happened to the, to the fledgling Christian church as it was trying to get its feet under it with the, the Romans living among them and with them sort of separating themselves from the Jewish sect? Yeah, sure it was. And he's saying, look, if this happens to you, just remember, there's no heaven on earth. There's only a heaven in heaven. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify who? Your Father who's where? In heaven. So there's no glory for you? Eh, maybe a little. But your glory is just a little bit of the shadow of, of, of His. I want to stop you uh, and, and remind you of a, a passage that gets quoted from, uh, from uh, Ellen White a lot. There's this passage that says, When the character of God is perfectly revealed in his people. Jesus will come. Do you know that the Jewish people in the first century had a similar statement? They said, when every Jew 
in Palestine keeps the Sabbath perfectly, the Messiah will come. And there was the Messiah going around town, breaking the Sabbath. It wasn't working out so well. I asked myself about that revelation of the character of God, particularly as we've been speaking about that, talking about that, thinking about that for the beginning of this year. The character of God perfectly revealed in his people. Do you know how important that would be at the end of time? Do you know how important that would be as the the clock begins to tick toward its end? That the people of God truly represent the character of God in the way they live, in the way they behave? Wouldn't that be very, very significant? Wouldn't it be an important thing for the world to have as a, a good reflection of the character of God? You do realize that there are famous quotations. My, my favorite one is Gandhi's quotation about Christianity. He's, he's been said to have said, <laughs> since he wasn't here, we can't ask him. Christianity seems to be a great religion. I wish someone would try it. That's not a good testament for Christianity. I have a question about this character of God thing. I'm going to get back to it because Jesus is going to talk about it in a minute. You know, the idea that it's necessary, that that it needs to be done, that the church needs to represent the character of God much better than it does, I think we all agree with. Is that true? People in the front do. The rest of you? You agree with that? I need agreement on this for a reason, okay? Do we agree that the, that the church could represent the character of God better in the world than it does today? Yes. Can we get on board with trying to do that ourselves, with actually living like God would like us to live, to represent his character better on the planet? Yes. A little harder, isn't it? One of the interesting things we, just, we learned, and we kind of knew already, but was reinforced in our our listening to Dr. Pauline's presentations about millennials is that millennials have been fed so much stuff for so long. You know, they've grown up with Madison Avenue throwing uh, ad after ad after ad after ad at them, telling them about this and telling them about that and telling them how wonderful this is and how wonderful that is. They've seen scientific proof be proven not to be true by someone else's scientific proof. They've seen so many things that were purported to be one thing that turned out to be something else that they were a little bit nervous about any claims from anyone. And if we are nearing the end, which most generations believe is true, and most, I I would join the generation of my own, if we are moving toward the end, this group more than anyone that has ever lived before in history is looking for real reflections of who God is in the people of God before they will believe. One of their most well-used, well-worn words is authenticity. Are you authentic? Are you really what you claim to be? If the character of God ever needed to be revealed in His people... Now is the day for it. Right? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and do what? 
Glorify who? Your Father in heaven. You see, here's where I have trouble with this. I don't have trouble with the church representing the character of God. I have a question as to whether it's meritorious. You see, the argument that folks have been throwing out is that this is a statement about what has to be at the end and it merits your salvation. And it's kind of you get there on your own statement and I just don't buy that. Why would it be different for a group at the end of time? If the grace of God and the mercy of God has saved everyone up to this point, why would it suddenly change? Why would the gears be shifted and all of a sudden we'd be on a different plan? I think that it's very necessary for the character of God to be represented in his people because the people of the world are looking for it. I don't think it's a meritorious activity. I think you're still saved by the grace of God all the way through. You're still covered by the mercy of God all the way through. And I think when God pulls back that veil of mercy in the last day of the history of sin, it destroys sin. And it destroys anyone who hangs on to it. And I think if that veil of mercy ever got pulled prematurely, I don't care how good you think you were. The sin that is in your character would cause your destruction. Are you following what I'm saying? They don't glorify you and say, wow, what a cool guy he is. What a wonderful woman she is. They say, man, your God must be amazing. They glorify your God, your Father, who is in heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not do what? Enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, here's where you have to find this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they kept the letter to the letter. They wrote the book on keeping it right. They wrote commentaries on keeping it right. The influence of their lives and their commentaries still bleeds over into the current activities of the Jewish world. There are still people trying to keep the Sabbath perfectly just one time. And he's saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who wrote the book on doing it the right way, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know how your righteousness exceeds theirs? Because you get it as a gift from Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness bestowed where yours falls short. It's his record written in the book of life where your name is recorded. It's his gift of his righteous behavior, his righteous life, and his almighty sacrifice that wraps up all in all of your salvation and mine. There is no other process. There is no other way. You can't get to the kingdom of heaven by meriting it. You can't get to the kingdom of heaven by doing it the old-fashioned way, earning it. You can't get there on your own. You get there because of the sacrifice and the gift and the record of Jesus Christ. I tell you that your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Who's coming to mind for the first century Jew right now? Those Romans. Them Romans. Love the Romans. 
pray for the Romans that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And they continue in the same vein. That's what the ellipses mean. Be perfect, therefore. Be perfect, how for? Because you loved your enemies and you prayed for those who persecuted them. Because you expressed the kind of unselfish love that God expresses. Be perfect like that. As your Father in heaven is perfect. You see this concept of that Jesus is putting forward is an argument about living the way God lives. Living a life based on love. Living a life that loves those who are persecuting you. Living a life that prays for those who are harming you. Now as you and I think this think sit here stand here this morning we all recognize that that bar is a very high reach. Right? How do the children of God get to be like God? By the power of God. That he who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. Do you realize that doesn't have you doing any of the work? It has you doing the surrendering to the one who is doing the work. That's a transformation that takes place in the human life, but it is not empowered by the human. It's empowered by the divine. It's empowered by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the presence of God. It's empowered by what God does, not what man does. And it is covered by His grace and His mercy while it happens. Sanctification is a real thing. Transformation of your life is a great thing. But it doesn't happen under our authority. It happens under God's authority. And as Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom of heaven under the the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to present the bar that God sets. And he puts it up high enough that as the Apostle Paul says, we'll begin to recognize we can't reach. And so we'll fall on Jesus. And trust Him for what He wants to do. So is there anything in our life that is so off track with God's plan, with God's thinking, with the way God expresses himself in the world that we're thinking about running off on top of a mountain and fighting the Romans. That we're thinking about setting up our own little kingdom. You know, my family, since uh, we were, since our kids were probably 10, 11 years old, has had this discussion. It started with our oldest son. Our oldest son, somewhere in that age, 10, 11, 12 years old, said, you know what we need to do? We need to buy a big piece of land, 100 acres or something, and we need to have a family compound. 
Think about that term. A family combat. Preachers and compounds is never a good thing. <laughs> so we need to have a family compound and we'll all move there. All five of our kids, and they were going to actually live, Brenda and I live there as well. And we'll all live there and we'll live on our family compound and we'll, we'll do stuff. And I was just talking to one of my boys last night and he was telling me, yeah, you know, we should, we, and it, this family compound thing has not died. The boys turned 30 this year and it's not dying. Now 30-year-old boys are talking about investing their own money in the compound. In fact, one of them was telling me, you know, I saw an ad for on Zillow, 198 acres uh, up in Lincoln, you know, 600,000. We could start the family compound. If you hear me moving to a compound, that's what happened. <laughs> Just the kids. But they started, started talking about how we could... You know, grow some or, grow some some trees and have an orchard, have a fruit orchard, and that maybe have a wedding venue for when the when the the fruit wasn't in harvest, and then maybe do some other things, maybe raise some cattle or some animals, so that those things. And then my my uh, my, my my boy is telling me, hey, you know, then we could work at this during part of the year, and then work at this during part of the year, and then work at this during part of the year, and kind of keep the keep things moving along. We won't need a ton of money on the compound because we'll take care of our own needs from the compound. And I think as that compound begins to take shape in my imagination, and maybe in the imagination of my sons, it's a little piece of heaven on earth. You know, it's away from trouble, and it's away from problems, and it's, it's out there somewhere where we don't have to deal with what the world is throwing at us. And I have to remind myself that there is no heaven on earth. There's only a heaven in heaven. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't want to have a nice place and a safe place for your family and your home and yourself. But we have to remember that there is no heaven on earth. There's only a heaven in heaven. So I want to challenge you, and I'm going to do it over and over again through this series. As Jesus lays out, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And if you want to go... Get a head start on these. Go to chapter 13. He starts the parables there and he's making that statement over and over again. One of the questions I want to ask is if that's what the kingdom of heaven's like, what's my kingdom I'm building like? Do they compare? Do they match up? Or are they at opposite ends? What kingdom am I trying to build? And how does it align with what God is saying about his own? I invite you to read through the book of Matthew. And I invite you, as you do, to ask yourself this question. To ask yourself if you've been trying to build a kingdom on the earth instead of recognizing that the only heaven is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to wander. We wander off the path and we wander away from your expressed will. We wander into trouble and wander around without direction. Dear Father, I ask that you would open your word to our mind and our mind to your word. 
as a church family as we wander through and maybe come under the guidance of your Holy Spirit in the book of Matthew for the next few weeks. I pray for each one of us to recognize